Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 108 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom. And Vera Grubbs, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we're featuring three local music groups in a series of interviews we're calling A Report from the Trenches. We'll hear how they've been coping with the COVID confinement, and we'll listen to a new song from each of these artists. We also have a group of essays from some of our favorite writers and an interview with Sonny Learcamp about redistricting in Indiana. Segment one begins with Chuck Wills and Nathan Dillon's conversation about the Aker brothers. Pam Rader interviews Sonny Learcamp about the once in a decade redistricting and the implications for Indiana. Jeff Tryon offers his thoughts on mansplaining and we'll close with the Aker Brothers song, Surfin' Cowboy. This is Chuck Wills with the Brown County Hour, and in this episode, we're going to speak with local musicians to hear about the creative ways they have endured this long winter, since there have been no opportunities for live performances. With us right now is Nathan Dillon. Hi, Nathan. Hi. We know you from uh, coming into the studio as part of the Acre Brothers, and I know that with weather and pandemic, uh, things have screeched to a halt. So how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, uh, the music is uh, keeping me going. That and my uh, awesome kids and family. Since you can't go out and gig and teaching is challenging in these times, how, how are you keeping the music going? What are you doing? Well, I've taken the time to uh, really get into recording at home. I've kind of soundproofed my living room and turned it into a, a studio space and uh Thanks to a uh, a very patient, uh, like I said, very patient family, and um, and then I started uh, reaching out to to musicians that I love and uh, love to play with, uh, people that I miss playing with live, and and also people from all different periods of my music playing life, all the way back to high school, and uh, I've started making music with people, kind of all over the country now, so it's. Uh, it's kind of widened the scope of who I'm involved with playing music with on a regular basis. You are recording at home and the other musicians are remotely recording at home and then you compile the tracks together. That's right. That's right. 
And uh, it's been a great way to learn how to mix, and it's been a great way to learn how to uh, um, kind of get past that initial home recordist stage and into learning the art of recording and mixing a little more. Yeah, that is different than performance, isn't it? That's, yeah, it's very, very different. I can't replace that, but it is a, a way of kind of continuing to try to grow as a musician. I'm uh, trying my hand at different sounds and uh, different kind of genres, I guess you could say. been making a lot of moody, dark, atmospheric music, which is a complete departure from Aker Brothers and kind of uh, singer-songwritery stuff that I had been doing during normal times. Recording at home, is, it's been a way of, uh, and also involving all these uh, different people from really all over the country. Our drummers in Los Angeles, our bass players in Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, everybody comes with their own kind of bag of tricks and things that they're comfortable with doing. And so it's a great way to kind of expand into other genres. And also trying to get really good recordings of kind of music that I fell in love with all the way back when I was a kid. So I've been doing a lot of like uh, surf rock music, and that involves a lot of great people. And well, I, I was particularly interested in the surf rock because you called me up and invited me into that project, and I'm telling you, that has been so much fun. Yeah. It is really fun. It's great fun. It's and we could take the time to to sit back, think about this this music that we've loved for all these years, and come up with our take on it. It's it's great fun. I I, I hope we keep making surf music forever. You know, it is such, as you said, a, a departure from what we normally do. We're going to play one of those surf tracks here in just a minute. Uh, let me ask you one last question. What is going to become of all this music? That's a good question. You know, this project started with submitting music to music libraries, and uh, that will continue. But some of this stuff, I think it's worth putting out on our own as well. Um, so I could see the surf music especially becoming... Um, an Acre Brothers surf instrumental record that comes out. And once we are playing live again, all this music that we've been making uh, in isolation will then kind of come full circle and come back around as new original music being played on the stage. It's It's been a great, a great learning experience, and it continues to be, you know. You know, I can just envision this summer outside playing a gig with a whole set of surf music, and personally, I'm really excited for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Me too. Nathan, thank you so much. And uh, we're going to play some of that great surf music here in just a moment. Well, thank you, Chuck. And thanks for your contribution to it. Dude, thanks. My pleasure. Pam Rader with the Brown County Hour, and I'm here in remote with Sonia Learcamp, who is a delegate chosen from our county involved in redistricting. Sonny, I'm really glad you could join us today. 
Well, Pam, I will tell you, I was so honored to be selected to be on this commission. And I'm also very excited. Last evening, we had our very first public forum. So I now have had some hands-on experience with gleaning information now from the public sector. So this is going to be an exciting time for Indiana. I know you're relatively new to the county, but not a lightweight. I originally grew up in Franklin, Indiana, in Johnson County. I went to IU and also went to IU Indianapolis uh, Law School, then spent most of my career as an attorney working in Hamilton County and living there and raising my three children. And I was the elected prosecutor of Hamilton County for 16 years. I've had some political involvement and it's been a very rewarding life. And I guess I thought that most of my public service was over with until I had the opportunity to serve on this commission. What is the organization under which your project is? The organization is called All In for Indiana. It's a coalition of organizations, including Common Cause and League of Women Voters and several other organizations. Right now, our focus is gathering information through public forums. But the bottom line is we will be in charge of uh, selecting the best maps at the end of this process. We are being assisted by, with, by some individuals, we have a legal team and we have a technology team. And we also are asking the public to participate because we are having a map drawing contest. And we hope that the public will weigh in. It's a web-based map drawing place that anyone can go to and assist us in trying to draw the very best maps for Indiana. I'm not sure everyone knows that the census is an every 10-year thing, and it is actually in the Constitution in Article 1 to do this every 10 years, and from that, everything is redrawn. That is correct. It is a constitutional requirement so that when there are changes in the population, both by increases in the number of people, but also when you have large numbers of people who may move from one part of the country to another part of the country, then the census triggers what we call reapportionment of the representatives and senators that represent us in Congress, but it also triggers at the state level selection of our local legislators, both for the House of Representatives and for the Senate, and even gets into drawing precinct lines and school district lines and different things like this. So the census is is a big deal. The states have discretion on the process they will use to redesign the lines, correct? The states do. There are different states have different governing rules. There are a very few who have independent commissions. Indiana does not have an independent commission as a general rule, although in the last few years we have tried to approach the legislature to statutorily create an independent commission. Right now in Indiana, 
The uh, redistricting process is governed strictly by the House of Representatives and Senate. They draw the maps. And the reason that we wanted to have an independent commission this year was to kind of show them a new perspective on how to gather information to assist in proper redistricting to maximize the one person, one vote rule that we feel should govern redistricting. Well, I heard the last uh, redrawing, Bloomington got chopped up into four districts. And then I've heard as that perhaps Indiana is actually 40% Democrat to 60 Republican, but its representation in the state house is like 20% to 80. So yeah. this is a big deal drawing fair maps. It is. And you know, it's kind of a process that has gone under the radar for most people for many, many years. People are becoming more interested in it because of that kind of skewing of the maps that results in a legislature that doesn't adequately represent all of the voters in the state. I was just quite frankly amazed at how many people participated in our first forum and the excellent questions we got and uh, the level of interest uh, of people out there. Now we're in Brown County in District 9. We're scheduled to be on March 10th. That's correct. A Wednesday from 7 to 9. That is correct. I want to make sure and say, if you're unable to um, attend the forum for your particular district, you can still attend one of the other forums virtually. That website again to go to to get more information is allinfordemocracy.org. And Sonny, I'm I'm just so pleased that you're representing our little bitty county here. Uh, thank you so much, and thank you for coming in and doing this interview. Hey, Pam, thank you very much for inviting me, and it was a pleasure. The other day, I caught myself explaining to my wife how to make chili. Right in the middle of carefully explaining what all goes into chili and just how it is prepared, I glanced over at her and she was giving me that look. But then I continued weakly, you've been cooking for 50 years, so I expect you know how to make chili. They call it mansplaining. It's when know-it-all guys like myself carefully and painstakingly explain to the little woman something she already knows and, in fact, something she herself told you. Of course, there are reasons for mansplaining. Not excuses, really, but reasons. Sometimes I'm actually trying to explain how to do some difficult thing, like changing the printer cartridge or emptying out the vacuum cleaner or finding a TV show on the Internet, something that she may actually not know. Although probably she does, and if not, I'm sure she'll ask. Sometimes I'm just making sure everybody's on the same page here, that we all understand what we're doing and how we're doing it, Shared information leads to better teamwork, that sort of thing. Sometimes I slip into mansplaining because I want her to do it right, the way I do it, which is, after all, the right way to do it. I have expended hours of careful thought about exactly how it should be done, and and that is the way it should be done, although technically I am not the one doing it. I'm telling you how to do it, the right way. 
If you want to stop yourself from mansplaining before you get caught doing it, something I highly recommend, you might consider these helpful questions before you speak. Does the person want an explanation? Are you making bad assumptions about their competence? Is it possible that your own personal point of view, your own interpretation of things, is affecting your outlook? Bias is such an ugly word. Kim Goodwin of the BBC has created a hilarious flowchart that explains mansplaining, which you can probably find on the Internet. You click on Google and then you type into the little window, mansplaining, oh, there I go again. Of course, mansplaining doesn't just happen between husbands and wives or couples. It rears its ugly head in all sorts of situations. When the boss carefully explains to everyone in the meeting the thing a person at the table just explained in detail, that's mansplaining, even if it's the boss is a woman. It's boss-splaining. We'll talk more about bossism later. When the preacher patiently explains the Trinity to a bored and nearly comatose congregation on Sunday morning, it's usually pretty much preacher-splaining although heaven knows they aren't listening anyway and couldn't begin to explain the Trinity themselves despite years and years of hearing it over and over and over again. That's a different matter. That's religion. We'll get into all that at some later date. I asked my intelligent and attractive mate to woman-splain to me how come it is that certain household tasks are inherently and unquestionably men's jobs. Taking out the trash, that's the man's job. Putting air in the tires, Getting a dead mouse out of the trap, or for that matter, getting the mouse into the trap in the first place, men's work. Climbing up in the attic, fiddling with the furnace, finding the household hand tools, using the household hand tools. Women just don't appreciate the rigors and hardships that accompany being the man of the house. In fact, it sometimes seems that the dividing line between a man's job and women's work, a phrase I strongly advise you to avoid, is that if it is gross, filthy, heavy, or potentially painful or dangerous, it is the man's job. When I confronted my wife with this idea, she looked thoughtful for a few moments, and then she said to me, well, they've got to do something.
Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. Segment two kicks off with our conversation with John Boyer and Jamie Hood, and they'll share an update on their current activities. We also have an interview with Jessica Busser, where she explains her new business venture called Wave Therapeutics, and we'll close with the Hammer and the Hatchet song, Same Storm, Different Day. I'd like to welcome the Hammer and the Hatchet to this segment. John and Jamie, welcome to the show. Hi, Chuck. Hey. Hey, it's great to have you on. You know, just like everybody else, you've been experiencing this weird COVID winter. For us musicians, it means no gigs and none of that great interaction that we're so used to. So how have you all been keeping your sanity? I would say to keep from climbing the walls, we've been working on uh, finishing songs and, uh, you know, trying to work on, at first it was like stuff on the house, but then it becomes music pretty quickly. Uh, Now we've been working on some videos and recording some new tunes. That's right. We've been staying busy as best we can, which is good for the, good for the brain, you know, to stay busy. But, uh, our pilot slash engineer, Dan Bent's been coming down and uh, he's been helping us work through some new tunes and some new recordings, you know, about once a month, once or twice a month. And uh, we've been steadily progressing through some really neat stuff. Jamie's got some great songs coming up. Your album, Road May Flood, the people that have heard that have just loved it. So is this going to be more that style that we're going to get to hear? Well, I think it's going to be a little bit of a blend of some of that. It still has some electric sounds and some interesting tones on the new stuff, but we're also doing some stuff that's bluegrass inspired originals. And then there's some stuff that we haven't quite figured out how to fit into the box. So we'll just call it American Roots or whatever you call that. (laughs) We are excited. We've got a couple uh, songs coming up with with some of our heroes on them, which is going to be really neat when those get to come out. The way we've been recording is just Jamie and I in the house with Dan as the engineer, and we're just we're getting to these songs, and occasionally we're like, "Hey, man, this would be really great if we had such and such uh, sitting on, on on this part." So we've got some really neat stuff developing. Without the people being home, we've been able to uh, reach out to some of our friends and do the collaborating that we all kind of daydream about that day that when you're, you're not going to be so busy. Uh, no. So we're trying to make make the most of that, you know? Yeah, that is a theme that I'm hearing from everybody. It's this stuck at home, creative recording at home. I really can't wait to see what creative stuff comes out of this COVID experience, because I, I think even though COVID's terrible, um, the songs might be really, really good. I yeah. think you're right. Art, art, Good art comes out of hard times. Hey, you know, good art comes out of necessity, too. I mean, we're in a situation where People are not or idle, you know, or, you know, everybody's been cooped up. So art has been a way of people to keep people, you know, motivated in their minds and stuff. And and even that kind of art is, is going to be spectacular. Yeah, I think it really speaks to people's uh, self-care, mental health, heart health, all that stuff. We're glad to help with that. We got some good stuff we're excited to send out soon. 
Good, good. And a song like we got today. Yeah, t- tell us about the song you're going to share with us. Well, um, it was literally uh, born of an idea. We talked about a storm front that was going over us and then coming past. And I, I popped off and said, same storm, different day, and laughed about how that was kind of how everything feels right now. So we ended up, um, I wrote a song about it. And so it's called Same Storm, Different Day. I'm excited about this track, Chuck, because it's got a real nice country vibe to it. And Jamie sings lead on this, of course, and I, I sing some harmonies best I can next to this one here. But, you know, uh, it's really great song for these times. You know, it's about keep going, you know, just we got this. That's the general vibe of this song, and I hope that people can feel that when they hear it. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing that song, and we'll keep our eyes peeled for the next one to come down the line from you. Thanks for having us. It is my pleasure to introduce Jessica Bussert, who is a former Fortune 500 executive, an emergency room nurse, and the founder of Wave Therapeutics. Thank you, Jessica, for coming in and uh, doing this interview with us. Dave, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Wave Therapeutics, this is your current project. Uh, You're involved in a lot of different things. Tell us a little bit about this business and exactly what is this product? Well, let let me start you with the genesis of the whole project. So my most recent career working for somebody else. I was working as an emergency room nurse. And a number of years ago, I'm in a small town hospital when a veteran comes in via ambulance. And the guy was disabled vet. He had lost his legs in Afghanistan. He was pretty poor. And he was suffering from the worst bed sores I'd ever seen in my life. Um, He was septic because of his injury and pretty close to death. And we were able to get him stabilized. And later on, while I'm waiting to for a bed to open up in the ICU, I'm talking to him and I'm learning his story. And his doctor had prescribed a $4,000 wheelchair cushion to help with the pressure injuries, but the guy couldn't afford it. I was, I was incensed uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, that anybody in this country, let alone a veteran, was going without their basic medical care. That just made me angry. And then secondly, there was a company out there that was taking basically $100 of parts and selling it for four grand. And it felt like um, profiteering off human suffering. And so in that moment, I just made the decision that I was going to use my tech skills and my healthcare knowledge to see if I could come up with a better solution that would be affordable to anybody who needed it. Describe the device for us so we can get a picture of it. So first of all, it's the technology that can be applied to a lot of different environments. But for the sake of a wheelchair cushion, what it looks like is a sequentially inflatable device that not only changes up the pressure points under the person that's choosing it, but it actually massages from the knees towards the buttocks in such a way that it promotes return blood flow. Now, in addition to that, we've also incorporated a whole array of sensors and communications capabilities and advanced microprocessors that can do predictive analysis 
on the tissue health of the patient using this. So my cushion can actually help um, identify tissue at risk before it's even visible to a clinician such as myself. Wow. So the sensors, this is like monitoring blood flow or body temperature, different things like that? Or? So right now what we're doing is monitoring pressure, temperature, and moisture. And each one of those is an indicator in its own way of a different aspect of tissue health. When, when those sensors detect something that's not right, the device can immediately send out what's called a push notification to the user's cell phone or to the user's nurse if they're at a facility or the user's doctor for that matter. And those care providers can change the prescription of the machine so it operates differently to address those danger conditions. That's just remarkable. All right. So you mentioned that the device that triggered your concern and interest in designing uh, this device went for about $4,000. I assume that the, one of the purposes of this is a more effective device for a much smaller price. Do you, I mean, not to be too nosy about it, but do you have a projected price that you're shooting for? So we're working substantially better than that 4,000 device. That thing was basically an automated teeter-totter and it just rocked you from side to side and that's all it did. Um, our product with the sequential flow and the sensor array and the processors and all the other stuff, we're, we're planning on bringing it to market for a price of around $450. Now we're talking, that's affordable. And uh, I've read that you are getting some interest from different groups, including the Veterans Health Administration. Oh, we've, we've generated a lot of interest. So recently we signed a contract with the Veterans Health Administration where they're actually paying to do testing on my product. Now the VHA is the largest healthcare provider in the United States. And so imagine if your biggest potential customer decided they were gonna put money on the table to test that your product did what you said it would. We've also generated interest from the Department of Defense and from Canada's Praxis Institute. And for our non-medical uses, we've generated interest from the automotive and the airline industry. I hadn't even thought of that, but yeah, that would be lovely to have something like that on a long flight. Uh, not only that, but imagine being a long haul trucker where you're in your big rig for eight hours a day. It not, it's not only a much more comfortable thing, but in those scenarios, it's a safety thing as well. So I'm sure you've been on a long flight and they've told you to get up and move around and twitch your legs. It's because you're, when you're sitting on those flights for so long, you're at risk for developing blood clots in your legs. And although we have not tested this yet, we very much believe that our product is going to help protect people from those injuries as well. This is, uh, this is outstanding. What, where are you at in your rollout? So over the years, I've invested a good bit of my own money in this project. And using those funds, we've created eight generations of prototypes. And now we've started our design for manufacture. We're almost actually complete with that process. 
we believe that within an, about two months period of time, we should be able to start doing a uh, slow rollout to select researchers and select customers to give us our initial feedback. That's exciting news. When are you hoping that this is uh, available across the spectrum? So right now we're raising uh, additional funds to help us accelerate things. So we've, we're, we're trying to get together a $2 million investment round. We've got about 1 million of that already earmarked. If we get the other million, then we anticipate to be able to launch about six months after that event. How do we get a hold of you? So you can find us on the web, um, wavetherapeuticsinc.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn under my name, Jessica Bussert. Thank you so much, Jessica. I can see how helpful this would be on so many levels. And here you are, a Brown County person, dipping into the big wide world with something that has potential to really help a lot of people. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome, David. You know, each year, 60,000 Americans die from bed sores and another 3 million are maimed. And I'm, I'm just actually really honored that my company is, is going to be a part of the solution for that problem. Well, we wish you all the best. Thank you. One, two, three. Skies have been looking pretty clear. Things are going good, nothing to fear. And I just feel a drop of
We pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from listeners like you and the support of the Brown County Inn, a family-friendly getaway destination located in Nashville, Indiana, offering locally sourced food, drinks, and live entertainment, with banquet space, indoor-outdoor pool, miniature golf, and more. Information and booking available at browncountyinn.com. Our final segment begins with our interview with Keenan Rainwater. Jim Eagleman shares his insights about winter bird colors. Dave Seastrom has a few reflections about the changing seasons. And we'll close the show with Keenan's song, Prodigal. For this segment, I'd like to welcome Keenan Rainwater to the studio. Hi, Keenan. Hi, Chuck. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us remotely. Uh, we've been talking to a lot of musicians this past month about what they've been doing during the crazy winter. No gigs. It's made it kind of a weird scene. Now, you have helped us out a lot with music from Rainwater Studios over the past year. So I know you've been busy, but I also know that you've spent a lot of time on your own personal music. And that's what I'd like to hear about today. How have you been finding the creative muse? Like you mentioned, uh, Rainwater Studios, we've been involved in uh, capturing music for the past few years. Uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, start doing that ahead of the pandemic when my band Rainwater kind of dissolved, we went straight into live streaming, uh, like I said, about three years ago. So when the pandemic hit, we already had about two years of live streaming under our belts and recording. And uh, I had already kind of transitioned from live performance into more virtual performances here. Um, So that's positioned me to uh, help some of my fellow artists and to start finally capturing some of my own art. For a while, it was just struggling to keep up with the technology and learn how to use these things. And I'm finally getting to the point where it isn't just totally absorbing my right brain or my left brain. I kind of, I relate it back to the technical stuff we do. And until you have a certain understanding of the technical elements of the studio, it's hard to access the creative side. But I've been finding more recently as I've been performing on the stream and I'm able to record my own songs and then use the technology here in the studio to overdub uh, extra tracks, lead parts, uh, mostly. So we're hearing this from a lot of musicians where they're really delving into, well, for them, home recording. You've really set up a a true studio for yourself. Now, I know over the years, we've heard you in different formats from just the singer-songwriter on up to a full-on electric band like 
split rail. So the music that you personally are, are working on now, which version of Keenan are we going to get to hear? What I've sent to you is uh, a little bit of an amalgamation, but this is an acoustic rendition, even though my buddy Ryan Dyer plays lead on an electric guitar that I own. So okay. it has a little electric guitar, but there's no drums and it's not rock and roll. So it's not the Indiana Boys that was full on acoustic mm-hmm. and it's not rainwater that was full on electric and it's not really split rail that's kind of an electric acoustic thing but it does have a member of split rail on it so (laughs) it's uh i think it's a little more true to me personally than split rail is as split rail has uh, another lead singer and its own culture which i love and i'm a part of but this is one of my personal songs called prodigal and it's my most recent creative endeavor as far as songs go and it is as my songs typically are written from personal experience. So it's, it's as me as it gets right now, I guess. So what we're, what we're going to be hearing, you could call it pure rainwater. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, you might even call it undiluted. Well, I look forward to hearing this song, and uh, we're going to be spinning that here in just a minute. So, Keenan, thank you for being with us, and we look forward to whatever you play for us next. You're welcome, Chuck. It's always a pleasure to join you guys at the Brown County Radio Hour. The color scheme outside lately has been predictably drab. Not much color when we look skyward. Even there, a gray, overcast hue tends to disappoint and blend in with the color of the snow-covered ground. Where does the sky end and the ground begin, I ask myself. So to leave the background of the monotonous, monochrome woods, I look to the bird feeders every day to watch for that joyous flash of color. Have you looked at the birds that come to your feeders on a daily basis? I mean, really look. I once heard a professor, more artful and expressive in her descriptions of the natural world than most, describe the fur, reptile skin, and feather color in a most expressive way, far more than any other professor. She admitted she had thought of a literary career as an outdoor writer before entering into her preferred field of teaching natural resources. Her lectures were sprinkled with poetic imagery, reason enough to never skip her class, I heard students say. The department newsletter came out twice a quarter and claimed she rated high in student evaluations of faculty. She was a true poet, and when she lectured on subjects some found tedious or boring, her descriptions helped us get through the hour. An avid wildlife watcher, most days she commented on birds at her feeder. The belly color of the junco, for example, she said, seemed as similar to the color of the snow on the ground where it fed The dark color on its back, she didn't have an explanation, but it didn't match the sky except maybe in extreme storms. But that led her to look further at the color of winter birds, and I admit her observations have stayed with me. The tufted titmouse, a common winter resident here in Indiana, also has a light gray belly, looking similar to the snow ground. There's a slight beige color carefully streaked under the folded wing and darker gray blending towards the back. Morning doves, some call them aunties as they fly noisily into roost together on the lower branches, have several shades of brown and gray with actual blotches of blue on the back and wings, but you almost have to have them in your hand to see this blue. And the purple finch, sparrow-sized and more common than the house finch, looks like, quote, it tipped over and fell into a jar of raspberry jam, I recall her saying. A flash of bright sky blue flew into the feeders yesterday and Kay exclaimed, Bluebird, as she grabbed the binoculars. 
It's different than the blue on blue jays, isn't it? She commented. Bluebirds could also be predicted and almost always showed up on the park's Christmas bird count I conducted over the years, attesting to the resilience of cold weather, but it's that color that is what you notice first, and you almost have to yell. This one timidly inspected the bluebird box that very well may have been where it was born. Of course, I have no way of knowing that, but it could be, I read, as they seem to likely stay around the same habitat where they grew up. That blue color of the male and the lesser bright blue on the female is a bonus for any winter bird watcher. And on these cold winter nights, we know they take up residency in bluebird boxes. Reason enough to leave last season's nesting material in there to act as insulation. Any red color up against the background snow is an eye-catcher for sure, so the male and female red-bellied woodpecker, with their red on the nape of the neck, the red-headed woodpecker, and of course the larger pileated, are all winter beauties and somehow just total standouts. And while the all-red male cardinal, what most Hoosiers call the red bird, is outstanding, I bet if you could compare the red colors of any woodpecker, even the small red patch on the backs of the heads of Harry and the Downy, to the cardinal, there'd be a definite red difference. But this would require we had them all in our hands for that close-up inspection, and my artist's wife would claim, yes, they have different hues, especially in the sunlight, she'd say. The black backs and heads of the Carolina chickadee here in southern Indiana isn't that different in color from the black of the black-capped found further north but there is a subtle difference of the two that I admit are almost too close to call. There is a steel blue on the back of the white-breasted nuthatch with, of course, the white breast, the faint orange light tan of the red-breasted, and smaller than the white-breasted nuthatch is what we look for when we visit family in Wisconsin, a more preferred habitat for it in the conifers found there. And the ubiquitous Carolina wren with that triplet call is a study in shades of brown, tan, and beige, Watch for the tiny checkerboard pattern. They're actually tiny streaks of white, little tan, and brown blotches on the backs and undersides. The white eye stripe will stand out even without binoculars. Color plumage in birds has been studied in research as we learn more about how they live, breed, and survive humankind's changing world. We know brighter feather color is typical of the male at breeding time, then fades to the more subtle color after breeding, sometimes resembling the summer female. And while we enjoy the winter feeding as birds come and go, spreading tail and wing feathers as they land or take off, giving us a different look than what we may recall before, it's not for us they display this showcase of color, but to aid in their mysterious ways, still mysterious, of survival, perpetuation of the species, and fulfilling their destinies. Watch for color these next few days. It's sure to nod heads and bring smiles. Jim Eagleman for Nature Ramblings. WFHB-FM Radio, the Brown County Hour. Thanks for listening. Oh, the difference a few weeks can make. For the first time in several years, Brown County and most of North America was immersed in a polar vortex. During this event, we had extended periods of extreme cold that was often in the single digits. If that wasn't enough, then it began to snow. The first snowstorm brought just a few inches, but no sooner was that storm finished when we received another 11 inches. Then, for all practical purposes, the world shut down. It's a good thing that the forecast gave us plenty of warning because once the snow hit, most of us were stranded. The county highway crew was overwhelmed by the amount of snow we had. 
and for the first few days after the storm, only the major roads were plowed, and the rest of the county was hopelessly snowed in. Fortunately, County Commissioner Jerry Pittman put two and two together and contacted a local trucking company and hired a handful of their laid-off workers to plow the back roads. And by the end of the first week, most of us could get to town if we needed to. Like many of us, my wife, Becky, and I were able to stock up on supplies in the days preceding the storm. We also made sure we had plenty of firewood stacked on our covered kitchen porch. Because we were prepared, when the blizzard finally hit, all we had to do was sit back and enjoy the storm. For the better part of 24 hours, we, like most of the Midwest, were pounded by continuous snow. There's more than a little satisfaction to being warm and comfortable while hunkering down in your own home and enjoying the show that nature provides. And what a show it was. At times, the howling wind blew the snow sideways, and as the trees swayed in the tempest, the snow grew ever deeper. Throughout the night, the snow blanketed the hills and valleys. When the sun came out the next morning, we were treated to the sight of thousands of sparkling jewels reflected in the snow and the hardy few that ventured out felt the sting of cold air in their lungs and saw their breath cascading forth in steaming clouds. Our friends to the north experienced many months of this kind of weather, but here in south-central Indiana, we managed to tough out about two weeks of Alaskan winter. And honestly, that's about all we want. For the most part, we've had a mild winter, and it's a good thing this storm came along this late in the season. If our winter had been this hard from the beginning, we'd all be stir-crazy by now. As it is, just about when we were all getting tired of our winter wonderland, the vortex moved on and suddenly it feels like spring outside. Mud time follows snow and the freeze-thaw cycle has worked its wonders. Our brick sidewalk heaved in the middle and there's no question that it will have to be rebuilt after the soil dries out. Considering the massive power outages so many others faced, we got off pretty easy, and one heaved sidewalk is a small price to pay for having endured such a massive weather event. As soon as the vortex passed, the temperatures warmed up and the snow began to melt. The next day, the sky was blue, and the warm, sweet-smelling spring air was filled with the sounds of songbirds seeking their mates. Within hours of the snow receding, the yard was filled with young daffodils reaching for the sky, and the freshly exposed grass began to come to life once again. And, remarkably, all of this took place in about three weeks. It will be early March when this show is broadcast, and in less than two weeks it will be officially spring. Hereabouts, there's lots of talk about how visually dramatic our falls are, and it's easy to understand why people are so attracted to this area during the color change. But for those of us in the know, nothing beats the dramatic change that takes place during a Brown County spring. The peepers will be peeping, the birds will be singing, and everywhere the forest will come alive as it changes colors from a dull brown to a vibrant green. As the days get longer, Gardens will grow, and people will be outside enjoying the weather, and before long, we'll all be wearing shorts and sporting suntans. Many of us have friends and family who are snowbirds, and some of us have thought about that lifestyle for ourselves. But for those of us who love the changing seasons, there's nothing better than surviving the storm and experiencing the onset of spring. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time.
Tuning in to episode 108 of the Brown County Hour, recorded remotely and in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville. 
and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. and anytime online. Be sure to look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe now more than ever the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour, coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.